begin in Mark uh, chapter 4, verse 35. And the same day, when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him, and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose, and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And they came over to the, uh, unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. And cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. And he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. But now there was nigh unto the mountains a herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done. And And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil, 
and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. And when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. Please be seated. Good morning. I'd like to turn your attention. There's a lot here. We're going to jump right in, and we're going to go. And we're going to go fast through this. There's a lot of things. Uh, we could spend a few weeks probably on this text. The more I've studied this text, there's a lot here. So we're, I feel like in some ways we're skimming the surface this morning. But uh, we'll allow the Holy Spirit to use what we have this morning and the time that we have. And uh, so let's, let's listen and ask of the Lord to apply what he would have for us to learn this morning. I'd like to take you backward even a little bit farther than... Uh, what Gary read this morning as a context at the beginning of chapter 4. That's where I'd like to begin, to set this all up. And again he began to teach by the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. All right, now, Jesus is in a boat and he's teaching the crowd that's gathered around the sea. And what we see here and know from Mark chapter 4, uh, it's called the parable of the soil, parable of uh, the sower, the hearts, known by many different names. Okay? Jesus is teaching, and all the way through verse 32, Jesus is teaching parables. Okay? Context. I'm giving context to where we're going. It's important to understand this. Now, verses 33 and 34 then, really Mark provides the writer here as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. Mark gives us a summary statement in 33 and 34 of chapter 4, describing the use of parables in Jesus' teaching. And then, where Gary began this morning in Mark 4, 35, we see these words. On the same day, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Okay, the other side of what? The other side of the lake. All right? They're in the, the area of Capernaum. They're on the Sea of Galilee, the lake of Gennesaret. Okay? And they're going to go to the other side. And Jesus says, let's cross over. See, Jesus had been teaching the multitude from the boat. He's on the Sea of Galilee, and now Jesus makes the call to go to the other side. It's important that we see that. Jesus is the one who initiates, let's go to the other side. Mark 4, 37-39, we see this windstorm, the waves beating in the boat. It was filling up. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the pillow. And they awoke him. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Look then, 
this is important, at Jesus' response to his disciples. Mark 4, verse 40. But he said to them two questions. Why are you so fearful? Second question. How is it that you have no faith? Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? I want you to look at those questions carefully. Do you see a connection between the two questions? Take note that Jesus' questions are directed at the hearts of those who are following him. We talked about following Jesus last week, didn't we? These two questions are directed at the hearts of those who are following him. And these two questions, I believe, are central in what follows in Mark chapter 5. You see, Jesus desires for the disciples to move from fear to faith. And I believe it's as though Jesus here at this point is saying, trust me, don't just follow me around. Trust me for who I am. Mark 4.41 gives the response of the disciples after Jesus calms the sea. And they feared exceedingly. If you write in your, your, your Bible, you might underline that because we're going to come back to that. We're going to point back to that. It's very important in what comes next here in Mark 5. They feared exceedingly. What were they fearing? They feared what just happened. This raging storm... Wind, all of a sudden came to a calm and a stop. And they feared. And they said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who can this be? Of all the people that asked that question, these are the followers of Jesus. So the disciples are on the lake in a boat with Jesus, having just seen the wind and the sea rebuked. There is a calmness. I like this picture. There's a calmness at this point on the sea. And the conversation among the disciples is one centered on the identity of Jesus. They're following Jesus but still unclear as to whom this man really is. His followers are not quite sure who he is. This miracle that's just occurred at the end of chapter 4 points out this unsettledness in their spirit about Jesus. They're following Jesus, but they seem to still be in the dark about who he really is. And this is the context for Mark chapter 5. Jesus asks, why are you so fearful? And where is your faith? So you can highlight those two questions. And the disciples' boat conversation the rest of the way over. Who is this man in the boat with us? Who is this man? And you know, maybe it's important for us to ask here too, 
How often? How often do you find yourself following Jesus but not embracing who He really is? Do you trust Him for all things? You see, the religious leaders of the day, in Jesus' day, are not the only ones who wrongly identify Jesus. Church is still happening today. Is it not? This is not a new problem. This has been going on for some time now. Nor is this a problem far removed from us today. Oh, that's them. That's some 2,000 years ago. No, we still have a lot of the same problem today. So the outline, I believe, in Mark 5, at least the outline I'd like to use this morning, I'd like to take it in the form of questions. And here's the first question. Really, it ties into the end of chapter 4. The first question is, what's going on? We're going to look at that verses 1 and 2. What's going on? Right? Mark 4, 35 through 41 provides context into the events of Mark 5. But I believe verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 give specific context into what's about to happen. Okay, so what's going on in the text? Why did Jesus desire to cross over to the other side? Remember back in 35 of chapter 4, he's the one, he's the one who suggested and recommended, let's go to the other side. This is Jesus' idea. Why? What are we going to encounter on the other side of the lake? I'm convinced at the time, the disciples had no idea what was about to happen. They had no idea. And think about this. What are the disciples thinking as their boat makes its way to the shore on the other side of the lake? Remember the text, the end of chapter 4 says, they feared exceedingly. And their conversation is centered around the identity of Jesus. This man who's in the boat with them, as they're going, making their way to the other side of the sea, questions abound amongst the disciples. You get maybe they're, they're whispering amongst each other. I mean, Jesus, after all, is in the same boat with them. But the conversation is centered on who this guy is. The beginning of chapter 5, they came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, to the country of the Gergesenes, or the Gerasenes. It's known by three different names. Okay? Essentially, this region on the southwest, southeast, excuse me, side of the sea. Okay? Capernaum was on, if you're looking at it on the map, Capernaum was, was northwest side, and they went in a little diagonal fashion over here. Okay? That's really the journey across the lake. And in typical Gospel of Mark fashion, the attention on the sea is now directed toward land. So we we cut from what's been happening on the sea, and action is about now to resume on land. The boat lands on the other side of the sea in the region of the Gadarenes. Gentile country. The region of the Decapolis, the ten cities. Verse 2 tells us that a man from the tombs met him. Met Jesus, that is. Because the text simply says, when he, that's Jesus, when he had come out of the boat. Could be a good explanation why Jesus is the only one getting out of the boat at this point in time. I would imagine, as a disciple, seeing what was coming toward the boat, I might not want to get out of the boat. The text says he got out of the boat, Jesus. Okay? 
So remember what the disciples had just gone through. And now the boat pulls up to shore. Jesus steps off and here comes this man, the text says, from the tombs, quickly approaching. Mark uses the next three verses. We're going to break this, this text down, this chapter. This is 20 verses here into five questions. So that first question really gives some context what's going on. But I believe Mark even then in, in verses 3, 4, and 5 wants to help us understand who this man is. So who is this man would be the question for verses 3, 4, and 5. Who is this man that's coming now down to the boat? Verse 3 says this man had his dwelling among the tombs. And don't miss at the end of 2 we see that this man from the tombs was a man with an unclean spirit. Okay? We have some idea of who this man is. But verse 3, he, he, he had his dwelling among the tombs. He hung out among the dead. Isn't that interesting? The text goes on to say that no one could bind him, not even with chains. And you're led to believe, according to the text, that this man had been bound probably due to the safety of others around him, but also perhaps to keep him from harming his own body. The efforts of binding this man doesn't work. Doesn't work. The text says the chains won't stay on this man. He's strong. There's something that makes him that way. And we're going to find out what that is. Verse 4 says that he had often been bound with chains and shackles. And the chains he pulled apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces. Notice this in verse 4. This is interesting. A little word study brought into play, which I believe is important here in context. It says, neither could anyone tame him. That word tame has in mind, maybe some of your translations have subdue. Well, the word there has in mind the taming of an animal. And so perhaps what Mark is painting for us right here is a man who is coming down to Jesus and the description that we have, he's trying to help us see that perhaps this man is acting more like an animal than that of a man. He's wild. No one has been able to subdue and tame this man. Verse 5 describes the man's daily patterns. Always, night and day. This was his habit. This is what he did day in, day out. Right here, verse 5. He would be in the mountains. He spent his time in the mountains and in the tombs. What was he doing? The text says he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. Church, this man is out of control. He doesn't seem to have much concern for others. I believe that he has a tendency to frighten others away from him. And perhaps the whole idea of cutting himself with stones, the idea of maybe trying to rid himself of these unclean spirits within him, perhaps. So you get a picture here of this man. 
If you read Luke's account, by the way, of this story, you see that he also ran around with no clothes on. Okay? And already in Mark 5, verse 2, we're told he's a man with an unclean spirit. And this is the person. This is the man who approaches Jesus upon stepping out of the boat. Now, understanding who this man is helps us imagine what Jesus and the disciples saw when they got to shore. The disciples thought they had it bad while they were out on the stormy sea. Didn't they? Now, they've been rowing. And their boat comes into Gadarene country. And they're witnessing a wild man, out of control, man without clothes, blood streaming down his body perhaps. This man is approaching them. And I wondered if the disciples started questioning Jesus' purpose for coming to the other side of the lake about right now. What's going on? Side note right here. For those of you who, when you heard this was the text, or maybe this morning you found out this is the text, and immediately you began to think to yourself, this is about a demon-possessed man. I, don't, I, this is a, I have a hard time relating to this. I want to encourage you. If that's you, and you think you're removed from the the purpose and meaning of this story, this account in Mark's gospel. Let me remind you of what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, it begins and says, you were dead in your transgressions, and he made you alive. In verse 2, it says that there was a time when you operated according to what? To the prince of the power of the air. Do you think you have something in common with this man, Legion? I think we do. Because you see, there was a day when each one of us were, by nature, children of wrath, Ephesians 2 verse says. Let's be sure we don't disconnect here with this story that Mark is giving to us. This particular account, he's wanting us to see very clearly, not just this man with an unclean spirit, Remember, the text is profitable for teaching, for instruction, for correction, for rebuke, for instruction in righteousness. So let's be clear on that. All right, so verses 6 through 13. We have 1 and 2, and then we have 3, 4, and 5. The next section, 6 through 13. And I'm going to ask this question. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? You ever been a part of something? And, and you're going along in something, and this activity's happening, and you're wondering to yourself, who in the world is leading this thing? I have. And some of you, especially some of you here that have a leadership gift, you've been a part of something, right? You've been a part of something, something's gone on, and you're sitting there, and it's eating at you. And you're thinking to yourself, Would someone please lead this? For those of you who have the leadership gift, you understand what I'm talking about. The question here is, who's in charge? Mark, the writer here, is very 
clear about who's in charge. Okay? Follow with me. Verse 6 says, When he, this man, with the unclean spirit, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. He, now, let's, let's, this is puzzling, this verse. Because it, it doesn't fit with what we've already come to see in the story, in the text. He saw him from afar. And he ran. I'm okay with those parts. And then it, then it says, he worshipped him. And I think to myself, what? He worshipped him. That's odd. This man no one could subdue, no one could tame. He now runs down to the boat. Jesus gets off the boat and he runs down there and he worships him. Why would a man with an unclean spirit do such a thing? Because you see the testimony in verses 3 through 5 is that he's wild, he's untamable, he's a threat to others and to himself. What would cause a man like this to worship Jesus? You see the word worship here when we use the word typically worship, we think we have these pictures, these images of what it means to worship. The idea of, of worship in this particular instance can, can hold the idea of, of, of homage shown to men of superior rank. That's a good way to look at it. Homage shown to men of superior rank. And the man with the unclean spirit is doing the only thing that he can do in the midst of Jesus. And that's fall down before him. I love it. And by the way, this is not unique in the Gospels, this picture. When you look at the, tra look, look at the track record for just a moment. And you go back to Mark chapter 1. All right, just, just follow this. I'm not going to take time to read, but just, just follow with me. In Mark chapter 1, remember he's in the synagogue in Capernaum. Right? And they were astonished at his teaching. And then verse 23, there's a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. Right? And Jesus rebukes him. Remember that? Okay, we keep going. And in verse 32, when the sun was set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were what? Demon-possessed. Verse 33, or 34, then he healed many who were sick and cast out many demons and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Oh, that's interesting. He didn't allow them to speak because they knew him. Hold on to that one. We'll keep going. Look at verse 39, chapter 1. He was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and what? Casting out demons. Turn the page. Keep going. It gets better. Mark chapter 3. These are probably two of my favorite ones as we're talking about what we're talking about here in chapter 5. Look at 11 and 12. I'm going to read these. These are good. Mark chapter 3, 11 and 12. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him. Oh, that sounds just like what's going on right now. They fell down before him, crying, cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. Oh, remember, let's go back to Mark 5. Remember our identity problem the disciples had? Those who were following Jesus had a question about his identity. It seems as though someone really knows his identity. And here's the, the strange twist on it. The ones who know his identity are the demons, the unclean spirits. They know who he is. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And then that passage and. and Mark 3, 20 through 27. Remember the scribes, verse 22. He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Isn't that interesting? 
They're saying that all of what Jesus is doing, he's casting out these demons because he's the ruler of them. And Jesus says, nonsense, that's, that's folly, foolishness. And he goes on and teaches them, shows them why. And then we arrive at chapter 5. And this man has come up to the boat. You see, immediately, immediately there's this clash between the man from the tombs and the man from God. A man dwelling in darkness and a man walking in the light. A man held captive and a man who came to do what? Set the captives free. A man who was loud and boisterous and a man known as the Prince of Peace. Who's in charge here? The text is going to clearly reveal the one in charge. Look at verse 7. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Now, if you read the text, you get the idea. Verse 8 actually takes place before verse 7, right? At the end of verse 7, it says, For he said to him, All right, so who's initiating this? Who's in charge? Jesus is in charge. Jesus initiates this and says, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Okay? So Jesus is the one who initiates, and this man with the unclean spirit is responding. Jesus calls the spirit to come out of the man, and like the instance back in Mark chapter 1, the spirit within the man cries out in a loud voice. I want you to notice the titles used by the unclean spirit to address Jesus. It says, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Church, this is evidence that even this unclean spirit understands Jesus is the Son of God. Remember back in chapter 1, when he's in the synagogue and that spirit there, what are we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? But did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You see, they're identifying properly who Jesus is. I, I believe as we look at this text, that Jesus and his disciples, I want you to look back at the end of four and remember what his disciples were dealing with and going through at the end of chapter 4. They were following Jesus, but I get the idea that they really didn't know him as of yet. They're uncertain still as to his identity. Not so with the man with the unclean spirit. He clearly identifies Jesus. He knows exactly who he is. And not only that, but the spirit realizes that he is in the presence of a superior I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Now, Church Mark, the gospel writer here, is not hinting at the authority in this particular encounter by the lake. He's not beating around the bush. He's, he's telling it very straightforward here. Okay, He's purposely showing Jesus as the authority. He's the one in charge. The man with the unclean spirit is imploring Jesus... 
Please, he's begging Jesus not to destroy him, not to torment him. Leads me to believe he recognizes Jesus' power to do that very thing. Why else would he ask the question? Why else would he beg him? Look at what Jesus does next. Then he asked him in verse 9, What is your name? And he answered saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. You ever wonder how that sounded? I don't believe it sounded like this. My name is Legion, for we are many. I believe it sounded much differently. But Jesus asked, here's another one of those questions. Did Jesus really not know his name? You see, there's some thought, some idea too, that when you know the person, when you have this understanding of who he is, and Jesus is the one asking the question. The superior is asking the question. The question comes from the one in charge. And the man with the unclean spirit reveals his name. My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a legion, familiar term back then? Maybe some of you it's a familiar term. Okay, a legion was, simply put, the um, largest unit of the Roman army. One writer said it consisted, a legion consisted of anywhere from three to 6,000 soldiers. Okay, a legion. Now, to the reader, this man is no longer, at this point, no longer occupied by an unclean spirit, singular. But many unclean spirits. Look at the spokesperson for the demons. Look at what he does in verse 10. It says, also, he, that's singular, he. He begged him earnestly. A lot of begging going on in there. He begged him earnestly that he would not send them, them, plural, out of the country. You get the idea that this unclean spirit recognizes the power of Jesus to do with the demons whatever he might please. The demon begs Jesus not to get rid of him. And this sets the stage for Mark to sketch in a little bit more, a few more details right here. Look at verse 11. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountain. Oh, this gets good. This is starting to get really, really good. You see, verse 11 is much more than just giving us a picture of the geography and the setting. And, you know, in, in literary terms, this would just be filling in the picture a little bit, uh, give us a little bit of view of what's around these people. But as the gospel writer is, is penning these words... There's a reason, a real good reason why we get this detail, okay? So we, we notice what's happening here. So all the demons, not one, all of them, okay? All of them, look at verse 12. All the demons begged him. I wonder what that was like. And they said, send us to the swine that we may enter them. 
Send us to the swine that we may enter them. You know what I, you know what I picture here? You know what I see going on? Desperation. <laughs> Desperation. That's what I see. The demons are desperate to find someone or something nearby. They're looking for some bargaining chip, something other than destruction, other than torment, something other than banishment from this area. Jesus, can we just enter those swine over there? Look at what Jesus does. Verse 13. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Who's in charge here? Who's in charge? He gave them permission. Any doubts here in the text about who the authority is? Any doubts at this point? Jesus gives them permission. The demons must be given permission. They don't operate on their own doing. They don't call the shots. They're not all powerful. They're not the superior. And when Jesus is around, the demons fall down at his bidding. You know, it also reminds me of that time when Jesus was in the garden. Remember that? And they came to arrest him. Remember that? And they're looking for Jesus. John, I believe, is the one who brings this out. And at the name of Jesus, those soldiers fell down, didn't they? Interesting. And as we look here at the text and we see what's happening and their desperation to enter into the swine, okay? Question comes as you read the text. Maybe you ask the question, why? Why would he do that? Why would he give them permission? Why didn't he just destroy them? And maybe some of you are asking, what did the pigs do to deserve such a thing? If you're feeling sorry for the pigs at this point, you're missing the point of the text. Okay? I'm going to be real honest. If you're having some hard feelings and you're, you're sad and, 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 and the pigs are getting you down, the fact the pigs are no longer around, you're missing it, okay? Because what Jesus does here is an amazing thing and, and yes, he could have just destroyed them. He could have. He had the power to do so, but he doesn't. So why doesn't he? We'll keep going in the text. Hopefully you'll, you'll get the answer to the question. You see, because Mark is about to reveal Jesus' greater purpose. And so we keep looking at the end of 13. Then the unclean spirits, this is probably, for me as I'm studying the text, this is probably the one I stopped at almost every time reading the text. This is so, uh, so hard and difficult to imagine how this happened. Okay, but verse 13 here says, The unclean spirits went out of this man and entered the swine. And then Mark tells us there were about 2,000. There were about 2,000. Okay, so it was not uncommon for Romans to eat pigs. Obviously, to the Jews, they're unclean, right? We're in Gentile country here in the country of the Gadarenes. In fact, it's, it's thought that a typical herd of swine numbered anywhere from 150 to 300. So the number that we're dealing with here, church, quite large, an unusual herd of pigs. 2,000! 
I want you to stop for a moment. Just imagine this. In one moment, the demons are gone from the man. And in another instant, they're present in the nearby herd of pigs. Pigs were feeding. That's what the text says. And now they're filled with demons. And what happened as a result? End of verse 13. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea. And drowned in the sea. And imagine you're there for just a moment and you're standing alongside the disciples and you hear Jesus grant the demons permission to enter the pigs. You glance over at the pigs and they're feeding there peacefully on the mountain. And you look back at the man named Legion and he immediately looks different now. And then you glance back at the pigs. And in amazement, those pigs that you saw just a second ago feeding, those pigs now are running, sprinting as fast as a pig can sprint. Down that hill. One, two, three, all of them are going in. And the text says they were running violently. Have you ever, I like this description because, you know, there was a day, and I even hate to admit it, but, you know, it it sort of fits here. There was a day when my brother and I, we would go out in the backyard and we would play some very heated contests of basketball. And there was time when, when, when my brother... And he knew what he was doing. He'd win. And he'd be done. He didn't want to play another game. And he would provoke me with that. Now, truth be told, I did the same thing to him when I, when I was winning too. Okay, but this is what we did. See, he, he would win, and then he would start to leave. And I'd run after him, and I'd get the ball. I'd do all kinds of things because I wanted to come back. We're going to play another game. But the whole idea, when I see in the text those pigs running violently, I think about that story in my own mind of going after my brother and those heated contests we had in the backyard and just wanting to be able to to play and and running after him hard. Maybe you've run after something hard. I see this picture in the text and I see these pigs, they're going right down into the water. (laughs) Moments ago, the disciples were out on the water in a boat in the midst of the storm. And Jesus, who had been asleep, woke up and rebuked the wind and the sea, bringing about instant calmness. And now they witness Jesus grant permission to the demons to enter the swine. The calm of the swine turned into a storm. And the storm of the man legion turned calm in an instant. If the disciples were puzzled before, they had something else now to add to their bewilderment. You see, he not only controls the wind and the sea, but he controls unclean spirits. He has the power to cast out demons and permit them to enter a bunch of pigs. The disciples also witness the true character and intentions of the demons. Let's not miss this in the text. You know, John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the gate, right? And as the good shepherd, he has come to give life. In that same text in verse 10, it tells us the intention of the evil one. Why has he come? 
to kill, to steal, and destroy. Do you not see that played out right here in the text? See, I I believe one of the answers, perhaps, to the question, why doesn't he just destroy the demons? I believe having those demons going into, giving them permission to enter into the pigs was going to put on display the very nature of the evil one himself. See, that's what he's about. His intentions are to to kill and to steal and to destroy. And this is a wonderful testimony in Mark 5, 14 of what the devil wants to accomplish. Not only with a bunch of pigs, but it's what he wants to accomplish in your life too. Steal, kill, destroy. See, Jesus had come to bring life. And in the same instant, the disciples saw the devil at his best, stealing, killing, and destroying. And the Lord Jesus doing what he came to do, and that's bring life and set captives free. You know, I wonder if the disciples at this point are beginning to see their purpose in coming over to the other side of the lake. This trip is intended to test the faith of the disciples. I believe that firmly based on how chapter 4 ends. Jesus says, why are you so fearful? And where's your faith, guys? Isn't it interesting how Jesus does that in your life? How when your faith is tested regarding some particular issue of who, who God is, how often he might then take you through something and it might come right on the heels of something else as an example to show you, to help you see to help you overcome, to put you back into play so that you can see it. I believe that's in large part what's happening here in chapter 5. The trip is intended to test the faith of the disciples, but it also is a trip to save the lost. It's a trip that vividly puts on display the wonderful works of Jesus. The trip across the sea represents a work that God desires to do in you. And you might not understand why you're going this direction. You might not understand why you're headed this way. But the Lord is working something in you. He's wanting you to see something about who He is. He's pointing your attention to His power, His authority, calling you to trust Him with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. See, the trip that he has you on right now, perhaps, I want you to know that that trip is not a wasted trip. It might be painful. It might not be to your liking. It might not be a trip that you would choose. But he's the one who's orchestrating the trip. He's the one who said, let us cross over to the other side. After establishing Jesus as the Son of the Most High God and showing Jesus as the power and authority over the demons. The question now is this. What's the point? What's the point? Okay? We, we understand now who's in charge. What's the point? And, and we'll look at Mark 14 through 17. Is Mark... See, the story could have ended. You know, Mark could have been content, perhaps just showing Christ's power and authority over the demons. The story's not done. The account's not done. There's more here. What's the point? What's he trying to hammer home here? You see, those who fed the swine, notice verse 14, they fled. They took off. They took off to the nearby city and country 
telling the news of what had just happened. Were they happy about what they just saw? (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think they were very happy about what they just saw. These ones who had been feeding the swine, these owners of the swine. I mean, think about it. If you're a farmer and your business was raising pigs, you just lost your pigs. You just lost your income. If you raise, you've got goats, right? We've got goats. We've got chickens. Whatever it is you might have. And they're gone. You're probably not going, your first reaction is probably not going to be happiness. And and I I sense the same way here. They weren't very happy about this. And Mark 5.15 says, then they came to Jesus. So they go out, the, the, the people who own the swine, they go out and tell the news into the city and the country. And then all those people, they come and check it out. You know what? I love this because people want to see something that's newsworthy, don't they? And even though the technology wasn't what it, what it is now, I guarantee you word got out quick about what just happened in the region of the Gadarenes. And all these people are coming to check this out. I mean, 2,000 pigs. Gone. So, people wanted to see what that looked like. And they came on the scene and noticed, here's what they noticed. And the text tells us what they noticed. They noticed four changes. 15 says, they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion. I am convinced everyone in this region knew this man, had heard the story of this man, and now they come on the scene to check out the pigs. And what do they do, do first? This man is by Jesus. And they notice that he's no longer possessed with this demon. He no longer has a legion of demons in him. What else does it say? What other change is happening? Mark says... He's now sitting by Jesus. And I think about some of the other stories and and, and the accounts in the Gospels and and just think about in general, is there a better place to be than sitting at the feet of Jesus? And here's this man seated at the feet of Jesus. What else do they see? He's now clothed. Remember, Luke's account says he wasn't clothed. Now he's clothed. Where did he get the clothes from? I don't know. Perhaps Jesus clothed him. Oh, and we think about how this all comes about. And this man who is now in Christ, not only has he been healed and set free from these demons, but you see in our lives when we are set free as well from the bondage of sin, doesn't Jesus Christ himself clothe us with his own perfect righteousness? Isn't that beautiful to see? So he's clothed. And what else? He's in his right mind. He's in his right mind. See, church, he's now controlled by a new master. He's no longer controlled by those demons. But he's controlled by his new superior. And they were afraid. Oh, this, verse 41, I've drawn a line from Mark 4, 41 down to Mark 5, 15. And they were afraid. The disciples of Jesus, remember were afraid when Jesus calmed the sea. The crowd that gathers, now they are afraid of what Jesus did with this man formerly known as Legion. Okay? That fear, the question here is, that fear, is it going to move them closer to or farther away from Jesus? Mark five sixteen. And those who saw it, the eyewitnesses, told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. 
All right, so everybody's there on the scene. They're able to see this man who was formerly legion. He's no longer legion. And he's clothed. He's sit, sitting down by Jesus, and he's in his right mind. And so the story goes, and they tell the bits and pieces of the story as they recall it. And perhaps if the account was given solely by the feeders of the pigs, there was a particular slant to the story. What do you think? Notice they share about the man, but they also speak about the swine. And as owners of the swine, the angle to the story at this point might be a bit partial, huh? Then they, look at 517. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. See, this, this region is predominantly a, a region of the Gentiles. And Jesus is being begged. Notice he's being begged once more. They're pleading with him to leave. A lot of people begging Jesus here. This is a sad begging right here in Mark 5.17. This is sad. He's being begged to leave. And doesn't this go against what you might expect to read here at this point? These people show up and they see this man who's changed. And instead of praise God for what Jesus just did. Isn't that amazing? No one could tame that man but Jesus can. Instead of that, they're pleading with him to leave. They don't want him around. The reaction here, church, is a carbon copy, it seems, of the disciples moments ago out on the lake. Fear. Fear. And while the fear of the disciples doesn't drive them completely away from Jesus, from following Jesus, they're still in the boat with Jesus, okay? That fear kept them from walking victoriously in faith. In fact, that's what Jesus points to. He connects their fear and their faith. Why is it? How is it you have no faith? Jesus says back at the end of chapter 4. Okay? The Jews, we see in the, in the Gospels, they demanded signs and they wanted evidence that Jesus was truly God. And time and again, Jesus shows himself to be God and yet they chose not to believe. They feared him. And here's what their fear did. See, their fear of him led to their rejection of him. They're plotting to take his life. And the people of the Gadarene community are rejecting Jesus. They're begging him to leave. He's not wanted in the Gadarene community anymore. And so then we need to ask a final question of these last few verses. What's the result of this? And the conclusion of the matter pertaining to the man Legion, formerly known as Legion. What about the man? Do we get any word about this man? So what's the conclusion? Look at the last few verses. Stay with me. We're about done. Does Jesus argue with the people about whether or not he should stay? Notice Jesus doesn't argue with them. They beg him to leave. And so it says in verse 18, when he got into the boat, he's leaving. He's leaving. The light of the world was in their region and they've called him to leave. We don't want you anymore. Reminds me in many ways of what our country seems to be doing. We don't need Jesus anymore. We don't need marriage to look like one man and one woman anymore. 
Just go, Jesus. We don't need you here. We can operate just fine without you. In fact, look at all the things that you're messing up, Jesus. Just get out of here. He's not going to stay where he's not wanted. He's provided the gathering community with the very presence of God and they're telling him it's time to go. And he gets into the boat, but, and I love this about the conclusion of this account. The man who had been set free from the legion of demons, now he's begging Jesus to go with him. Jesus, I want to go. Let me go with you. Jesus, if they're going to get rid of you, I want to go with you. I mean, imagine the spirit of rejection this man would now receive from the people in the gathering community. See, he would probably be viewed indirectly as the man responsible for the loss of income, the loss of those 2,000 pigs because of that man right there. As a changed man, He now stands out. Doesn't he stand out now to the rest of the community? And this is the picture Mark is painting. And it's a, it's a wonderful picture. Look what Jesus says. He's asked to go with Jesus. However, Jesus did not permit him. Interesting contrast. The demons beg him to go into the swine. And Jesus says... I'll permit you. And this man asks him to go along with him. And Jesus says, no. But that's not all he says. He also says, go. No, go. Go home to your friends. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And so the conclusion to Mark's account has a bit of a twist. While he doesn't permit him to go, he does permit the demons Earlier, to enter the swine. He says, go home to your friends. It leads me to believe this man, Legion, at one time maybe had a family, maybe had a wife. We don't know. Go home to your friends to tell them of the great things the Lord's done for you. And yet, oftentimes in the Gospels, we see how careful he is about having those who are healed speak any words. Isn't that interesting? Why? Why would he say it's okay to go and speak? Go ahead, share it with everybody. Here it is. Jesus is leaving. He's getting on his boat and he's leaving. But his presence is staying in the Gadarene community. His presence is staying. And this man is his representative. And he departed... Verse 20, and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled, all marveled. This is a Gentile community. So here's the conclusion of the matter. Jesus has this man stay in the country of the Gadarenes to share his story. A story which highlighted, verse 20 says, all that Jesus had done for him. That's his story. All that Jesus had done for him. And church, don't you have the same 
story? Weren't you once dead in your sins and controlled by the prince of the power of the air? And not everyone is going to directly follow Jesus. We see in the Gospels there were 12, right, that followed him full time. But he calls others to go and continue his presence wherever he may direct you to be. To take the name of Jesus with you wherever you go. Jesus impacted one man directly. I'm convinced he shook a whole country. He shook a region. And the conclusion to the story is that the name of Jesus went forth through this man formerly known as Legion. And he impacted not only the city by the sea, but the ten cities that made up the Decapolis. He went throughout the Decapolis. Ten cities. Gentile in nature, predominantly. Sharing the story of all that Jesus had done. And he served as a light and he became the one who was going to project what Jesus himself said. That he was going to be a light unto the Gentiles. And he uses this man, formerly known as Legion, to do the very thing, to carry out the very work that Jesus himself came to accomplish. You know, I find it interesting, church, that in ministering to one person, and we saw this in the book of Jonah, Jesus can discipline and get the attention of a man named Jonah on board a ship. But at the very same time, in getting Jonah's attention, he also includes and can dispense his mercy on a bunch of pagan mariners. In the midst of setting a captive free, this man formerly known as Legion, he can at the very same time make his presence known to a community that absolutely needs Jesus lost without him and show himself to that community at the very same time. And he can leave that man in that region. Would it have been comfortable for Legion to stay there in that region? I don't think so. But I do believe the very same thing about you and me. Perhaps he has you in a position that's not comfortable. But he's calling you there he's saying no 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 you need to stay right there and here's why because there are people lots of people who are lost and have yet to hear the good news of Jesus they've yet to hear all that I have done for them and you are going to be the person that I'm calling to stay right here and be about that work on my behalf I praise the Lord for the text it's opened my eyes to be able to see very clearly some things that Mark, I believe, as he's sharing this gospel. This is in Mark, this is in Matthew, and this is in Luke, all three accounts. But I believe Mark gives us the most full picture, the, the, the details of the account we see most here in Mark's gospel. And it's a beautiful picture. Fear and faith and the disciples wondering about the identity of Jesus. And I believe here in Mark chapter 5, He's helping the disciples see clearly who he is and at the same time helping them 
overcome that fear and to then be able to walk in faith, trusting him, holding on to him, regardless of the situation. This is good news. And if a man like Legion can be set free, church, you might know some people who are lost. I believe by the power of Jesus Christ that they too can be set free. And perhaps today, the action point for you from the text is to proclaim to some of these folks that you know who are lost. Tell them your story of all that Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded of the psalmist. Whenever I'm afraid, I would trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. Father, I pray for this body that when we are afraid, that we would draw closer to you and not run away. Father, it would be our heart's desire to walk by faith and not by sight. It would be our heart's desire to correctly identify who you are and to be able to live and operate in such a way that we truly do trust who you are. And regardless of what our circumstances might say, we can without a doubt know that you are working for good for those who love you. That promise is there in Romans 8. Father, thank you for your word, your sure word of testimony. Thank you for this account in Mark's gospel. Thank you for helping us see some of the context, helping us see what's going on in this account. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would be bold as your witnesses to go and tell all the people that we know to be unashamed to tell them of all that you've done for us. We thank you for what you've done for us through Jesus Christ at the cross. May we never, ever forget that. May we proclaim that always. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.